1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to welcome back to the show, Joey Caffone of Baron Fig. Recently, I re-released his original podcast episode where we talked about the founding of Baron Fig and their mission and what it is they do and how they do it and his whole ethos of creativity, both analog and digital. And is there a conflict there? No, not really. Not if you don't create one yourself. But this week, we're talking about his brand new book, The Laws of Creativity, Unlock Your Originality and Awaken Your Creative Genius. And it's all about creative thinking, essentially. He's drawing on decades of experience and distilling elements of creativity into an easy-to-use guide. It's a a roadmap for unleashing a creative force that is inside of you. He's an award-winning creator and a designer and an entrepreneur. So he's wrestled with this and struggled with this and come out the other side to demystify the creative process and uncover the thinking and science behind it to empower you as a reader with practical and actionable steps towards creative excellence. And to illuminate those concepts, he's including stories from iconic creators across history like Albert Einstein, Martin Luther King Jr., Serena Williams, Harry Houdini, Bruce Lee, and many more. And if you don't think you're a creative, I challenge you on that, and so does Joey. So I'm going to get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Joey Caffone. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome back to the show, Joey Caffone. Joey, welcome back. Thank you so much, man. I'm
0: excited to chat today. Got a lot to talk about.
1: Yeah, it's been a while, but luckily on Twitter, I saw you had a new book coming out, which was a reason to have you back on immediately versus in my hopper of, hey, great guest that's been on before. Let's have them back. You know, let's do the homework and figure out what they've been up to. You did that for me by doing the work of creating the book. So first and foremost, though, I want to say if somebody hasn't listened to the past episode, let's give a little bit of a disclaimer slash piece of context here. Baron Fig What is Baron Fig.
0: Yes. I'm the creator of Baron Fig. We made it back in 2013, where we make tools for thinkers that help you do your best thinking, such as appropriate for this podcast would be our journal called the Do Work Journal that runs on something named the Do System that helps you set milestones and then do tasks and so on and so forth. Things like that.
1: Perfect. And obviously you have all sorts of, honestly, it's, it's not software tools, It's analog tools. It's analog creative tools. Unless you've got something digital that I'm unaware of, because I am so into the analog side of things. I have a Baron fig pen sitting somewhere here. Where'd it go? It's usually sitting right here on the desk. (laughs) I think my son took it, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. He loves it so much.
0: That's good. Yeah, we make analog tools. I always am like, man, sometimes I'll say we make notebooks and people hop. oh, you make laptops? And I'm like, ah, you know, the ones with paper on the inside. So there is a place for analog tools. I've got a passion for it, but I think it's more like whatever tool I think does the best job and analog tools have a certain place in my workflow. And I also, of course, have a ton of software that I love and use too.
1: We do a mix of both. I constantly like to – and actually, we'll get into this when we get into what the book is and some of the different laws. There's almost a law of analog in my mind (laughs) that's not necessarily uh, (laughs) in the book, but it's that I can do better. Because I'm constantly staring at a screen, I can do some of my best – thinking or brain dump stuff, having a legal pad or a barren fig notebook and pen in front of me with, say, a cup of coffee. And depending upon what environment is best for that, that's another law. We'll get into that. So the book which is also a tool for creativity, called The Laws of Creativity, Unlock Your Originality and Awaken Your Creative Genius. And so when I heard the title, when I saw it on Twitter, I said, well, of course, this is what he's writing. This makes perfect sense. This is kind of Baron Fig in a more expanded or packaged up, thought out approach. Or I should say, it's kind of an ethos to creativity that then the tools that you create at Baron Fig allow you to help implement.
0: Yeah, so we talked pre-pandemic, and then during the pandemic is when this book came alive, where I was in the kitchen talking to my wife, and she must have heard me kind of toss around the idea of what I'd like in this book for years. So finally, she put down her coffee, and she grabbed my arm, and she stared at me, and she said, if you don't write this now, you're never going to write it, because we were stuck at home, you know, like everyone, everywhere. And the time all of a sudden was abundant in some regard. So I did. I sat down and I wrote this book in less than a year. And it has all these laws that help you understand what creativity is and how it works and ultimately how you can harness it for a whole load of benefits.
1: See, and I love that you've got that catalyst of a wife finally saying, or, or <laughs> saying, Hey, finally get to that thing. Finally now, like, cause that was my next question was, you know, what caused you to write this now versus any other time? And I think obviously it's kind of a, a, there's probably another dimension here to the Venn diagram of perfect timing of pandemic and ability to do so at that time, as well as then wife nudging. Those are two circles. Is there a third one or a fourth one?
0: Well, I, you know, I, I was also realizing I'm coming up on 10 years of Baron Fig. And when I started the company, I was you know, in my mid-twenties. I didn't know anything. And 10 years later, realizing I have designed or art directed over 100 physical products, actually more digital products as well, that we've launched and put into customers' hands. And like, I have systematized that. And I've learned so much and I realized, wow, I actually, maybe I wasn't ready when I first wanted to write the book, but now I am definitely ready. And I think it's a testament to my readiness because I ended up writing the whole thing in like 11 months. And it's just kind of fell out of me when I finally
1: sat down. Interesting. Well, I noticed that there are 39 laws of creativity in the book. Could you not just like fudge one more to make it an even 40? (laughs) <laughs> I
0: know. I know. I know. It was originally 30. Uh, I think it was originally like 37. And then I added a, a prologue and an epilogue law. And now everybody's like, dude, the 40 laws, what were you thinking? And I'm like, man, you know, okay. When it comes to Isaac Newton and gravity, he didn't invent it. He just wrote what he witnessed. So I, in my defense, I didn't create the laws. I merely am just recording what is there. So universe, I'm upset that there aren't 40 and who knows, maybe I'll discover it and call it the 40th law and it'll be a whole new thing in a few years.
1: Yeah, it's a bonus uh, digital chapter that you can get. (laughs) Well, you mentioned the prologue as well as the epilogue. Let's start there. One, macro level. There's the prologue, there's the epilogue, and then there's three parts to how the laws are grouped. I personally have gone through and marked some of the laws that I think are most prevalent or applicable to me But I think there's also room for you to maybe mark and say, hey, here's some of the ones that made the most impact for you. But before we get there, let's start. What's the prologue, the law of origin? How and why does that kick off the book?
0: This is the most important law. It's, It's law zero. It says everyone, including you, started out creative. Creativity is not something you need to learn, but remember And when you think about that, okay, Joey, that's a fancy insight. It's nice to to feel that way, but it's actually true. And I didn't personally prove it. NASA actually proved it. So NASA did a study and they found that 98% of kids are creative genius level at age five. Right. And, you know, we always hearken back to like, you know, be playful like a kid and be, you know, kids have no limits and all that stuff. And it's actually kids are ranked at the creative genius level. But by adulthood, the number goes all the way down to just 2%. So just over a decade and a half, you go from 98% geniuses to 2% of them. My point here in the prologue is that a lot of what you're going to read in this book is not necessarily something that's new. It's just something you haven't probably engaged with in a very long time. So you're remembering it.
1: Gotcha. So it's kind of an invitation. It's a reminder slash momentum builder that, hey, as you're starting to go through these laws, again, not new, like you said, but as long as you know that and you recognize that and and can internalize the laws as you go through it, they're going to make a big impact. You call them laws. Why do we call them laws? Is it that a better term than, say, principle of, or is it a better title overall for the book per se? What led you to that word or phrasing?
0: Yeah. Great question. Creativity, I think people have such incorrect view of a lot of the time where it's sort of viewed as magic. When I was writing the book, I say this in the intro, when I was writing the book, people are like, oh my goodness, dude, you're going to teach us the magic? And I'm like, no, absolutely not creativity is as reliable as learning any other practice like counting. I always say, you know, creating spreadsheets, basketball. There are things you learn and they are facts. And so to me, the best way to represent that is the laws. I want people to be sure right from the get-go, right from the cover, that what I'm saying is not, here's a technique that may work. No, like this is how it works. You can engage with it in various ways. But these are actually guaranteed principles, laws of the psychology of creativity.
1: Gotcha. And curiously enough, then, again, I mentioned that the book is broken down then, or the laws are grouped together, I should say, into three different parts. And then you've got the epilogue. We can talk about the epilogue when we close out here. But what was the kind of methodology in terms of grooving those laws together into those three parts? The first part is foundation. Second part is process and third part is excellence. Did certain laws just kind of start to, you know, organize themselves in your brain and as well as your outline as you were going through, or did you start with that end in mind?
0: Yeah, I think I was lucky enough that I had an abnormal book writing process where I sat down and I wrote the table of contents. And then I would say 90% of that is how it ended up even through all the editing and everything, which I was shocked because I didn't expect that. I was just sort of going at it. But I broke them down into three particular parts for a reason. So if we think about, you know, the NASA pact first, and we look at that and we're like, well, why are we losing it? My first goal was I need to understand why 96% of people are losing this creative genius, address that first, and then actually tell people how to create. And so I basically realized that a lot of what's happening is when we're kids, we have this free spirit that actually kind of gets beaten out of us as we go through schooling and education. And that I'm absolutely not blaming, you know, teachers or anything. I think it's just the way we've found so far that works best. But there's three particular things that really affect how we grow up psychologically. And the first is that we teach that authority is unquestionable, right? Your teachers, your principals, all sorts of deans and staff, your parents. Most people don't talk back. That's as a negative connotation or challenge them growing up. The second thing is that man-made rules must be followed to a fault. If that's the rule, a lot of times we teach, it's unquestionable as well. So you've got people that are unquestionable. You got rules that are unquestionable. And then the third thing I think that's probably the most damaging of all, is that the end is always visible from the start. So in school, as a kid, you're always given an assignment. You know what you have to end up with. If it's a paper or a worksheet filled out, whatever it is. And then you go, you graduate and you go to the workforce. And again, you're given assignments from managers and they have, here's what we need. You go and do it. And so you're always, always seeing the end from the start. And it's the exact opposite when you're doing something creative. The end is never visible. So to answer your question is, why did I break into these parts? I realized that first I had to tear down this construct that people have of what to expect from life and living and thinking. And so that part one is foundation. And it's basically a mindset alteration. I think in the beginning, I even say, look, the operating system that society has given you, it's not ideal for creativity. It does a lot of other things well, but not this. So we're going to install a new one. And in foundation, you learn how to think creatively. You understand how self expression works, just how unique you are. I actually prove it. And if you want, I can go into that and how to better enjoy the things you do. Then once you're like, okay. Maybe I'm not thinking about this right. This is some new perspective. Then in the second section, process now it's a how to guide, like literally from nothing, not even an idea. You come to this section from nothing and you go all the way through step by step to producing and publishing whatever it is that you want. And then in the third part is my favorite. And I have had the beautiful luck of being able to work with some incredible creators. I have seen patterns in how these people who are at the tops of their fields think and operate, and there's a set of laws that guides all of them as well. So those are the three parts.
1: So digging in, I should also mention that, by the way, you do call that out at the beginning of each of these sections, the parts of the book. Part one is foundation foundation how to think creatively, and then you say the laws of mindset. So the first part, the foundation, is mindset and those laws of mindset. Part two is process, how to create from start to finish, the laws of action, which I think is key because oftentimes we can think about thinking or do actual thinking and not count it as creation, which is partially true because it is action. It's almost pseudo-action in some ways. Yeah. Right. It can get lumped into action, but it's not. But at the same time, it actually is in a weird way. So it, I don't know. We can discuss that a little bit more. But then uh, part three is excellence, how to rise above the rest. And these are the laws of greatness. In other words, excellence in your craft, excellence in if you already know how to be creative, if you've got the right mindset and you've got the actions in place, these are the laws that then l- allow you to level up your craft. Correct. And, you know, I
0: think a question that a lot of people have is, why should I care about this? And that's that's totally fair. Like, why care? And there's two particular thoughts I have for that. The first is, especially for your audience, the to-do list is a is like the symbol of productivity. And I'm a to-do list freak. And that's your left brain. And then creativity is your right brain, where your imagination lies, as opposed to your left, where you have all of your logic. And the best way I can say that, emotionally speaking, is you need both to to be a full human being that's operating at the max. That's why there's the left and the right. They're two halves of a whole. And so if you're just extremely productive, but you are not the source of the ideas, you're kind of always serving others in a sense. And not that that's bad, but there's a place and a time and a type for it. And the other thing in general, like, you know, I'm a fan of data and I'm just going to drop a few really key ideas here is that kids who do creative activities twice as likely to graduate from college. Adults earn 13% more money. They're more happy as well. Organizations make three times more revenue if they are engaged in investing in creativity. And across the board, people have more fun. So just like In terms of why is this important at all, it's extremely evident time after time that being creative, working on your creative muscle, just like your productive muscle, allows you to just do so much more, have so much more, and enjoy so much more.
1: Yeah. Well, let's dive into these different sections here. Let's start with mindset. Let's begin there. And as I said before, I kind of earmarked, not literally, digitally captured certain laws that stuck out to me in each of these sections And the first laws are the laws of mindset. So let's get into the mindset of mindset, Joey, and talk about (laughs) why is mindset so important for creativity? And what are some of the standout laws for you in this section? And then I'll share mine.
0: Okay. Law number one the law of expression, I think, lays down a really important point, which is your uniqueness is what makes your creations unique. They become original, effective, and memorable. And I and I have a part in there where I essentially prove it. So let's see if we can prove it with you right now. Let's give this a shot. So, Eric, give me three things that you are really into. So, like, you know, for me, I'm a big fan of, let's say, the science fiction book, Do So can you give me, like, a movie, TV show, books, activities, just three things, any category. Tell me what they are.
1: Sure. Let's see. Okay. So on the spot, let's see. Um... Let me go with uh I like the Marvel movie stuff. I like the Marvel, you know, universe, not just the movies, but the comics too. So, superhero movies. Let's let's, let's make it broader. That's one. Okay. Let's see. Um I'm top of, let me turn around and look at my my back catalog here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I got you on this. spot. Oh,
1: music. Well, I, I love music. You know, I like going to concerts. I love certain music. you know, so like the band U2 or Wilco. There's a few others there. Krung Bin. Look cool. them up. They're awesome. Those are some of my top bands. Let's see something else. Oh, let's throw Monty Python in the mix. I love comedies, but we'll stick with them particularly.
0: All right. Sweet. So we've got, let's say three things. We have superhero movies, type of movie. We've got, I'll go with U2. It's the first one you mentioned. And we've got Monty Python, one of many comedies. So now let's say there's a, just a thousand options for each of these. And we know there's like a, a ton more when you do types of, you know, individual comedy movies or then types of probably superheroes and superhero flicks. There's, a, there's a zillion. And then of course bands, there's just a budget making up words here. So just with A, B and C here and a thousand options for each, there's one billion permutations. That could happen. And so what happens is right there with three things, you are already as unique as one in eight people. Now, of course, we know that you are comprised of way more than these three things. So let's say, let's just toss in one more. And let's say you really like, I don't know. Let's say you like Isaac Asimov. It's a book, uh, robot dreams with four variables. The number of combinations goes to one trillion, which is 128 times the population of earth. So what I'm saying is that when you take these things and you combine them into the imprint that is you, you are actually mathematically super freaking unique. And when you put that into the things you create, when you create from who you are,
1: the things you make become unique. right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well it basically feels like magic? For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise canceling headphones, definitely, meeting free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? That law of expression is just a, a huge setup. And actually it makes me think of oh what is it called? There's another law that I'm thinking of. I think it's the law of competition, you know, which talks about measuring against yourself. We often measure against other people. And so we discount the law of expression being something we can do uniquely because we say, well, there's other people who already like the things that I listed off.
0: Yes, absolutely. The law of competition is probably one of my favorites, to be honest, in the beginning. And it says, don't compare yourself to others, but compare today's you to yesterday's you. And that is something that we all can really fall into very quickly. So I'll tell you a story from the book is there was this guy named George Danzig, and he was in college. You probably remember this. And He realized he's late for math class. So he's running across campus, right? Just sprinting. You can picture the dude. Everyone's chilling on the grass and he's flying by. And he gets to class about five minutes late. There's already homework on the board. So he sits down. He writes the equations. He attends the lecture. And then he sneaks out right before the end because he doesn't want the professor to call him down to the front. So he goes home and... He works over the next couple of weeks to solve these problems and they're really, really hard, but he solves them and he sulks back to the professor's office and he was like, Hey, I'm sorry. These took longer than I expected. I've been a terrible student, but here's my homework. And, he, and the, the, the professor just waves his hand and says, put it on my desk. So George thinks that's the end of it. And then uh, that weekend, all of a sudden, You find the professor running across campus to George's dorm room, and he was banging on the door, and George opens the door, like, what the heck is going on? And the professor is waving his homework in the air, out of breath, can barely speak, and he goes, I can't believe it. Well, as it turns out, those two problems that were on the board were examples of unsolvable math problems that mathematicians have not been able to figure out for decades. And the student, George Danzik, solved them both. And I go in to explain that the reason is because that George didn't have the preconceived notions like the rest of the class did. And the professor even where the professor said, hey, these are unsolved problems. No one even tried to solve them. And the only reason George did is because he thought they were home. Then he even goes on to admit later in his life that if he knew that they were unsolved problems, there's no way he would have even tried. But because he didn't measure against anyone but himself, because he didn't have these preconceived understandings of him versus X or Y or Z, he was able to solve them. And it it taught him a lesson, it taught me a lesson, and I hope it teaches everyone else a lesson, that when you stop comparing yourself and start figuring out what your path is, you tend to wander from the path and create your own. And that's when some really interesting things happen.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where I hear people talk about this, and you know, I I tell this to other people when they they say, "Hey, is it is it too late to, for example, start a podcast?" And I say, "No," because they're like, "Oh, podcasts have been around for so long; it's too late to start one." There's already a podcast about the topic that I want to talk about, et cetera. And I'm like, "Yeah, but not from you. You're unique. You have a unique view." Yes. You're going to unlock something different and unique. Like there were other business podcasts out when I started this one and there were even other productivity podcasts out when I started this one. Some of them don't exist anymore. This one's still going strong. So who won? I'm saying me. <laughs> Humbly, I'm saying me. No, I'm kidding. There are actually, there are now more great productivity podcasts out there than just this one and others that have died along the way. And that's great. There's room for all of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there is. I got the same thing when I started Baron Fig. Our first product was a notebook. And I wanted to start, you know, I actually wanted to start designing it as part of my senior thesis at design school. And my teacher said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Who's going to buy notebooks? Why would you do that? There's already companies making it. And of course, you know, I went on to do it anyway. And that teacher has quietly not said another word. And we've sold literally hundreds of thousands of notebooks, all corners of the planet. So the short of it is exactly what you learned is that when you do it your way, you find people who like that way. And it's okay if some people don't and they like
1: the other guy's way, but there's there's certainly space. One of the other things that uh, I think helps with the law of competition, it's a different aspect of mindset is actually the law that comes right after it about having fun, which is the law of play. This is one that I mark down for myself because I think when I can make it fun or when I enter into the process, not looking at it as work, but looking at it as a puzzle or something to solve, something fun to do, a fun challenge, if you will, It sets it up for not just better work, but a better, well, better mindset, but better attitude, better approach and easier work overall after that mindset shift.
0: Yeah. When you're having fun, it just, it doesn't feel like work, even though you are making things. I think uh, I said something like, you know, in the state of play, you go further, longer and harder with less effort. And it's true. When you combine that with the law of competition, even though I'm saying not to compete with others. You can see how other people really excel is because they figured out what they enjoy and then they figured out how to make it part of their life or a primary part of their life. And it's certainly hard. And I'm not saying that this is (laughs) the book is not here's how to find your mission in life. You can use it for that. Absolutely. But you can also say, here's how I can find my mission in this thing that I have to do at work or this thing I want to do at home. And you can take it on a small scale and then essentially find the enjoyment, find out what's, what's the part of this thing that's fun for you and focus on it a bit, understand it, maximize it if you can, and you'll find the things that you do end up putting energy towards are more robust in general.
1: All right, let's move in to the second section, which is about process. And this is, again, these are the, it's how to create from start. To finish. And these are the laws of action. In fact, this is the largest section of the book. I think there are more laws in this section than in the first section and in the third section. And so, obviously, that's a good idea, though, because (laughs) action is where the action happens, right? Yes. Describe this section a little bit. Like I kind of hinted at this earlier, where, you know, thinking is action, but action is action, but sometimes. Just action for the sake of action is wasted action or just spinning of wheels. So how do you view this action section yourself?
0: Yeah, I like that you called earlier thinking like pseudo action, and it's certainly part of the process. And what we find is a lot of people will either get stuck or I shouldn't say they're stuck, but they are the quote unquote type of person that likes to brood and think a lot. And then you have the opposite where there are people who barely think, and they are all action. And so in the laws of action, there's still a lot about balancing it. Like the law of curiosity is really, are you asking questions? Are you not just looking at the world, but seeing? Are you not just listening, but hearing? And then you go on to the law of precision, which is identifying problems and so on and so forth to, to the point where you're actually, okay, here's how to build something. Here are the steps. Here's how to collaborate, so on and so forth. But as a whole, how I like to describe it is, you know, say you are, I'm actually not a person who travels that much. I joke around with my family and friends that you could stick me in a room with no windows. And if I've got some good books and a a notebook, like I will live a full life. So, but traveling is a great metaphor for creativity in the sense that imagine you're going somewhere on the planet that you haven't been. Okay. Cool. I've never been to um Berlin. Let's let's roll with Berlin. Never been there. And essentially Berlin is a mystery to me. I have no idea what I'm going to experience when I get there. What's the culture like? The food? I truly have no clue. But I know exactly how to get there. I know that I have to pack my bags, go to the airport, I have to fly, I have to follow the signs when I land, in the car that I rent, I have to walk on roads and paths that are already built and basically get myself there. And I do that for anywhere on the earth, even though I don't know what I'm going to find at the end. And creativity or the process of it is exactly the same. The end is a mystery. And I'm not going to say that that end point isn't magical because it is. It's like, wow, I can't believe I came up with this at the end. But the process is, is not magic at all. It's like traveling. You follow the signs and the paths and the, the transportation methods, and you just get yourself from point A to B all the way down until you've got this thing in front of you that you made. And so that is this entire section is the laws of action. It's the side posts. It's the transportation methods that teach you how to... Be curious how to understand what inspiration is, what it is, how to value simplicity and how to take an idea and put it at the center of something, build around it, iterate some of the interesting things that can happen or the things that people challenge you on, how you essentially have to take up kind of like your sword and be a little bit of a revel at times, and also how you have to be vulnerable. And if you do all of these things... You get at the end something that you can truly say, Hey, this I'm proud of this. This is this has a piece of me and here it is, and you give it to the world, which at that point it actually is no longer yours anymore.
1: Mm, yeah. I do want to say, I remember when you said somebody was saying, Oh, you're gonna you're gonna reveal the magic or you're gonna share the magic. And that made me that that instantly made me think of the gathering inspiration action law of the muse, how do you balance out inspiration and this whole, you know, muse mentality (laughs) when, uh, because it is to some people, it's like, oh, the muse is the magic. And if I just follow it, then everything will happen. But that's not, you know, it's not all about that. It's also about showing up and doing the work, et cetera.
0: Yes. Yes. There's the muse is the thing that inspires you, but it doesn't necessitate that you have to wait for the muse to come to you. I think that's that's what you're mentioning here. And is what a lot of people kind of get misconstrued is where like, I have to wait for inspiration to strike, right? It's, it's, It's so misunderstood. There's a common phrase for it. And actually you have to also learn how to reach out and strike the muse itself. And that just comes really with the groundwork that was laid before about paying attention and sharpening your ideas and your thoughts so that you are ready at all times for the muse to strike you, a.k.a. you strike the muse. It's almost like a simultaneous thing when it's actually happening. So every chapter in the book has a story that it starts out with. So there's like 39 key stories in this one. There's a guy walking his dog in the mountains and he's got all these plants that uh, grew over the path. And so they're all over his pants and whatnot. And he sits down, he takes them off and he goes up the mountain. So nothing, no thought hits his mind, but then he's got to come down the mountain. And again, he goes through this part of the path that's overgrown. And again, these things stick to his pants. And this time he's like, how the heck are these all sticking to my pants so well? So he takes it home. And he puts it under his microscope. And it turns out to be burrs from a plant called the burdocks. It's a burdock burrs where they have these tiny little hooks at the end of this ball. It's almost like a porcupine if it were a sphere. And this guy, his name is George de Mestral, was so fascinated, he wanted to reproduce it synthetically to see what he could do with it. And of course, now today we know this is the moment that the idea of Velcro was born. And eventually he did figure it out. And now we know it's everywhere. And it came for that moment where George picked up the bird off bird and said, how does this work? But he had to reach out and pick that up. He had to go look. And so it's a combination of when something presents itself, do you take the step towards it as well and say, well, let me look at this a little bit more. And that's how inspiration really works when you are kind of mastering
1: again. Well, and it sounds to me like the law of the muse really is an extension of the law of curiosity, especially in that example.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, good insight there.
1: I do want to point out that there's a number of them here, four or five of them, that come before the law of beginning, which I think is a very hard one for people to get used to. Some people are really good at beginning. They can start things left and right and never finish them. Other people, they can't get started at all Though if they could, they could probably finish. There's probably a third type out there. There's probably, you know, in terms of those personality tests, there's probably a creativity personality test that, you know, you could design and, and fit all different people into, or it's just the way that, that those different personality types like, uh, live out their creativity, so to speak. But point being, beginnings can be hard for people. Talk a little bit about the law of the beginning.
0: This goes back to what I was saying earlier about how, you know, when we're young, the beginning is always visible from the end. And all of a sudden, when you're faced with wanting to create something, and that could be as simple as a spreadsheet at work or, uh, you know, a little doodle on the bulletin board to as large as a product or a company, you don't know what the end is until you start. And so that prevents most people from starting. And there's two, I think, two approaches that I take towards dismantling that belief uh, because it's, it's really a lot of fear about am I ready or, you know, I, you start to identify with what you're doing. So you have to, depending on how you're thinking, you sort of break it down from a logical point of view or an emotional point of view. So for your logical point of view, I I wrote a little mantra which basically says, it's unreasonable expect to get things right on the first try, so don't wait until you feel ready. You have to accept that you're going to stumble a bit before you can walk. And your emotional self is, when you identify so much, is, I am not my creations. And however important they are to me, ultimately, your creativity and what you make is just an aspect of who you are. So essentially the failures and your successes don't define you. So there's essentially, once you conquer your logical or your emotional self, now it's like, I'm ready to begin. And then imagine, I call this, there's, there's two ways of looking at it, two paths to creation. What we are unfortunately given as kids is the linear fantasy, right? If you imagine a line left to right, on the left you've got start, line straight across to finish, boom, you're done. What actually you need to appreciate is the nonlinear reality, which is there's a start on the left and there's a finish on the right, but there's not a line going from left to right. There's a line that spiegels all over the place as a dead ends and finally maybe gets to the finish line. Then when you can accept that as your reality, which is the way it works, then you realize the beginning is just a step and it's not the be all end all and you don't have to know where you're going and it's so much easier to start anything when you understand that
1: yeah well and that ties into actually the very next law which is one of the ones i marked down for me which is uh law of ideation. And I'd love for you to explain that a little bit. One of the things that always jumps out to me when it comes to ideas or ideation is the thought that, and and I think this is just a phrase I've thrown around for a long time, is good ideas come from many ideas. Don't be afraid to have lots of ideas, even bad ones, air quotes, bad ones, because it's only by Getting those all out and in front of you, you know, this is where Baron Fig's tools come in to play greatly for me specifically, is get it out in front of you. You can do it digitally too, but I, I like to have it in front of me and to be able to cross things out and do almost mind map and attach different, you know, associations and meanings from all the different ideas and iterations. Talk a little bit about this law of ideation.
0: Yeah, I love how you said, you said, what was that again? Good ideas come from many ideas. Yes, that's it. See, this is beautiful. This is what I said earlier. I'm not inventing the laws, right? I'm just recognizing, and you're recognizing the same thing because I have my own version of exactly that. So I speak somewhere in this law or in a, a nearby law, which is about, you know, we say quality over quantity. Okay, great. Uh, no one is going to disagree. I'd rather have one really nice thing than ten, you know, pieces of garbage. But That adage doesn't actually tell us how to get there, right? It's just a destination. It's not a journey. Quality over quantity. So the real juice, and it's exactly what you said, and for my version is the answer, quantity begets quality. Or like you said, good ideas come from many ideas. So it's a, a matter of not doing one really good thing. It's doing a lot of things, and then you will get the really good thing as a byproduct when you're not worried about it. So for this, the law of ideation essentially says, take your idea and make it real no matter how rough. And this chapter is all about pulling some idea from your head and putting it into the real world. When you do that, you can then see it, change it, share it, talk about it. And that is incredibly powerful. Now, the key here is to take it out as quickly and as roughly as possible it doesn't matter i think this is another stumbling block it doesn't matter how nice it is but people try to make their first version really really special and it's just a waste of time and you get so many things wrong so i say that i like to call it sketching and it's not doodling or anything right to me a sketch can come out in in three manifestations you can draw your ideas you can write your ideas or you can craft them and You can choose that depending on your skill set or what the project requires. Either way, you do one of those three things to bring something to life. When I was first starting Baron Fig, I was trying to explain to these other two guys I was working with what I wanted to do. And they're like, I don't know, man, what, like a notebook and a desk cloth cover, who cares? So after we met once a week, I immediately ran all over New York City and I grabbed all these different materials and I taped together over another notebook. I bought a notebook. I didn't even try to create it. I taped together this thing that sort of represented it. And I literally used masking tape and it was just ugly and stuff was sticking out everywhere. But when I met them the next week, I tossed it on the table and they got to pick it up. And they were like, oh, I see what you're going for. This doesn't exist. This is really neat. And the energy from that night on, that conversation, because there was something to pass around and understand, We were able to iterate quickly. I was able to share a vision that was only in my head. And I did it for five to 10 minutes of messing around and maybe three or four dollars worth of materials.
1: Amazing. Well, that makes me think of the law of plain sight to a certain degree, which is all about not discounting the obvious. To you, it was obvious. And to them, it wasn't that this thing needed to exist and didn't yet.
0: Yeah, the Law of Flight site is so great. Oh, man. This is this is a pet peeve of mine. So as a designer, you know, before I started Baron Fig, I used to do branding because I really love taking a lot and distilling it into some sort of like logo representation and everything. And I remember, you know, working at an agency or with a group and people, designers would, and I'm sure this happens in of course, in other industries, but designers would say, man, that answer is too obvious. And I would always say, like, maybe it's obvious because it's exactly the right answer. Now, I'm not saying that every obvious thing is right because you are going to need to do your diligence. But let's take like the most obvious example is the one of the most valuable companies on the planet Earth is Apple. And what is the logo? It is an apple. It is extremely obvious. And yet it works. When you look at the apple, you think Apple. and sometimes. It is that simple. And so you have to be okay with incredible results, sometimes not coming from incredible effort. Sometimes it is easy. And how do you appreciate and recognize? And then, of course, you do your diligence to double check.
1: Yeah, man, it just makes me jump ahead to another law that's here in this section, actually the law of imperfection, which kind of blends the the law of ideation, the law of plain sight, even um a mindset law of the competition. The law of imperfection kind of deals with the hang up that it's done or it's as done as it's going to be, but we can't let it go and publish it, whatever form that means for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Publishing is, is a pretty wild thing. It's uh, the, the law basically says aim for perfection and you'll find yourself smothered by perpetual searching and disappointment. And it's so true. Uh, You know, I mentioned earlier, we've done like a hundred, over a hundred products now. And every time we get something back, you know, in our hands, production is done, it's ready to go. There's always something that I I look at it and I'm like, man, I could have changed this spacing a little bit, or I could have adjusted this or that. But at the end of the day, no one cares. No one sees it. No one notices. So what this is, essentially understanding that perfection is a model to chase. Plato, the philosopher, came up with what he called the Platonic Forms, which is essentially the idea of something as a as a representation that never exists, you know, like a circle in our head is perfect, but in the real world, there is no such thing as a perfect circle. And it's same thing when you're creating is you're going to have to say, this is good enough at some point and let go. There's a term for that, that business folks use when they're making products, which is called the minimum viable product, the MVP. Mm -hmm. And it's the first and simplest thing they can sell and make money. And for me, I have what I created was something called the prime construct was a little bit different, where it's essentially the simplest manifestation of your idea that still holds the core idea that you're trying to communicate. So it's not just products, but it could be anything. And when you find that prime construct, then you go and you put that out into the world if you can, or you then iterate on it depending on the permanence. Like I, you know, the prime construct for a book is the first draft. I wouldn't publish that, but that represented my idea in full. And then I was able to tweak it. And then I was able to publish uh, soon after. But there are at the opposite end of the spectrum, there's say a podcast episode. The prime construct is a digital recording that we're doing right now that we can publish. And then later on, maybe we're like, oh, man, you know, there's we cut off Joey or we cut off Eric at some point. You, know, you can go back and edit it and just replace that file. And so when you recognize what your prime construct is, you've got kind of to able to move more smoothly into the publishing step and then beyond that, which is to
1: kind of let it go.
0: We've
1: talked about part one, the foundation and thinking and mindset. We've talked about part two, the process and the laws of action. Let's briefly talk about part three, and then let's hit that little epilogue law real quick. So part three is excellence. How to rise above the rest. These are the laws of greatness. Let's uh, talk about what does that mean? What does greatness mean? And how do these laws get you there?
0: (laughs) Yeah, greatness. Greatness is relative. And I know that this is where it's directly the antithesis of the law of competition, which says don't compare yourself to others. Then you have the laws of greatness, which is, let's say, okay, we are stepping back and we're saying, hey, you know, why are these people different or excelling beyond this other group or the majority? And it's a set of laws that essentially bring that together. I won't go through all of them, but it starts out with the law of showing up, which is essentially at the end of the day, if you do not do the work, no one is going to do it for you. There's no one's going to make you great. So if you can't swallow the idea that there are no shortcuts, then just the book's over right now or trying to be great is a lost cause. And that's fine. There are people who are fine at exactly where they are. And I am not arguing that. That's why it is just, this is its own section. But if you want to understand it or you want to at least see it, they lay it out. And then I continue to talk about how important discipline is, how important habitat is. I know you mentioned how important impulse is, and I know you mentioned habitat, which is. A huge part of you know, your success is setting yourself up for success before you can do the work. And right through all the way to just growth and collaboration and the goodness of your heart and just so much about being a good human and being a good creator goes into excelling beyond the rest.
1: And so then the book caps off with The Law of Vision. Let's give a brief synopsis of that one.
0: Yeah, well, to achieve something, you have to envision a goal. And I like to say that when we talked about the linear fantasy, right, you're not going to know where you end up, but you can have a vision and you can point yourself rather than plan. So especially, you know, in terms of a to-do list, you're not going to be able to get your to-do list to take you to the end at the beginning. But what you can do is you can say, I'm going to list out in a separate list these abstract goals. So for example, with Baron Fig, you know, I want to champion thinkers so that they feel like they are empowered to do their best thinking. I don't know always how that's going to manifest. I don't know what it's going to look like in five or 10 years, but I know that I can still stick to that. And that's, that's the difference between a vision and an ending in a vision. You can envision and give yourself the purpose so that you can fulfill it.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, so we've covered, uh, you know, the first two chunks and the third and, you know, the, the, that blog a little bit here. Obviously the book is going to be out soon. At the time of this recording, it'll be out like either momentarily or it's out now. But I want to point people to where they can, one, find out more about the book ahead of time. Two, find out more about it and see if they want to grab it you know, aside from this conversation that we had, which I think was pretty convincing. I could probably do a podcast episode on every single law of this book. So thank you for that. And <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, let's point people to where they can find out more about the book and or grab it.
0: Yeah, sure. You know, thank you, first of all, for having me and thanks everybody for listening. If you would like to check out The Laws of Creativity, my hub is slash book. You'll be able to pre-order it or buy it in a number of ways, analog, digital. And additionally, I encourage you to visit Baron Fig at barrenfig.com. That's B-A-R-O-N. And see what we've got going there. And there is the analog version that you could buy. And of course, always down for people to say hello via Twitter at Joey Cafone.
1: Awesome. Joey, great talking to you again. And this will be the second time you've been on, but not the last. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and I can't wait to have you back.
0: Eric, thank you, man. I really, really appreciate it. It's an honor being able to just chat.
1: Seriously. It's like the greatest thing on earth. So thank you so much. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Joey Caffone as much as I did. The Laws of Creativity is a great book to come out right now because it make kind of the perfect, I don't know, stocking stuffer, although a book is kind of big for a stocking. But you know somebody, whether it's you or someone else, that does need this book. This is a great book for this dark time. And I don't mean the times around us and the time we find ourselves in. I'm talking about the season that we're heading into in terms of fall and winter where curling up like me with uh, a warm beverage and maybe a blanket, but definitely a good book like this one, and just pausing and doing less work, but enjoying reading. This is a perfect book for that because you can just go one law at a time and ponder it and savor it and spend some time with it, dissect it, or pick it apart and apply it, in other words, is what I'm saying. So I know that it's perfect for you. It's probably also something that's perfect for someone else. Like I said, gifting the book to yourself and someone else, but not only doing that with the book, but with this episode. If you know of somebody that needs to hear this conversation, do them that favor, do me that favor, do the show that favor of hitting share in your podcast player app of choice and let them know about this episode. You can also find the show notes for this episode at beyondthetodolist.com and you can find select shortcast episodes of this show on Blinkist. That's seven to 10 minute episodes condensed down to their essence. You can find those at beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you again for listening. And I will see you next episode.